Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down or call 630-629-1720 Morningstar Books and Gifts, 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Law, your host, and we are here once again with Katie Goulis. Before we get into the body of our program, just wanted to acknowledge a few people who, again, are sending us very nice letters and comments and very supportive and questions oftentimes, too. One of those persons I'd like to thank is Helen Woodson from Fort Worth, Texas. Helen Woodson, thank you for your very kind letter. And above all, thanks for listening. And also, I would like to thank Jesus who is another one of our prisoners who listens to us, and he is out of Segoville, Texas. That's Jesus. You know who you are. Thanks for writing to me. And Jesus wrote to me about his growing interest in liturgical art, or religious art, and specifically in iconography. And he asked me a few questions, which are questions I'm asked by many people, especially those of you who have become interested in this form of art from the Eastern churches, this Byzantine iconography. It's rather interesting, Jesus, that you wrote to me at this time of year because we just came through in our liturgical calendar the Feast of St. Peter in Chains, in other words, where we actually acknowledge and venerate the chains of St. Peter. And this is based upon an event in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12, where Peter was in double chains. He was in prison. Of course, that's during the early persecution of the Christians. He's in double chains, the Bible says, and he's sleeping between two guards. And in the middle of the night, an angel comes and tells him, just get up. And he gets up, and the chains fall from his hands. And he, the angel says, just follow me. And he releases Peter, leads him out of the jail. And Peter then 
goes and ends up in the home of his fellow Christians, who, of course, are there shocked that he's free. But in the meantime, the Bible says that Peter wakes up. He thought this was almost like a dream. You can well imagine that he would think that. I certainly would. But he wakes up and realizes it was a dream. And he realizes it was for God to reveal something to the world through this event. And in the Byzantine liturgical services for the Feast of St. Peter in Chains, we actually say a very interesting line, as we always do in our liturgy, we say that Peter himself being chained, what really was chained was evil thinking, heretical thinking. And what was really freed was Christ, the witness of Christ through Peter. So in trying to chain Christ, Christ's missionaries, Christ's spokesman, Peter, he actually liberated the truth. He allowed the truth to be seen and to be witnessed to especially when the angel came and Peter was released and went and proclaimed this miracle to his fellow Christians in the early Christian community. And from there, of course, they went out to preach everywhere. So in trying to restrain Peter, only as God can do, the chains were actually a freedom. And I hope that those of you are listening, especially from prisons, and we have many of you who do write to us, we really appreciate it, and we certainly send our prayers out to you. We hope, too, that you can see your time although you are in chains, so to speak, that you can see your time as, in a sense, a certain freedom or emancipation spiritually. You have time now to allow for Christ to redeem you, to make your situation redemptive, to make it a witness, and for you to witness. So, as only God can do, you take the worst of everything, even being in chains, whether it's for a time or maybe for the rest of your life. And yet, let that be something that God can work through, and can turn into something redemptive. And this is why I was glad to hear from people like Jesus who are making their time and change, as it were, redemptive. And Jesus has gotten into painting, iconography, and he has lots of questions, questions that many of you ask as well. And one of those questions is, where can he learn more about this? Well, a couple of things I would instruct you to do, Jesus, is I would instruct anyone who's interested in iconography, and more and more people are becoming interested in that. First of all, And I say this also because not only am I an iconographer, but I was, first of all, before I was even a priest, I was an artist. That was my trade. That was my my field. So I can't help saying that, first of all, we have to be able to develop a little bit of artistic skill because it is an art form. And art forms, just like music, are created by God as vehicles by which we can glorify God. We can make him manifest. He can incarnate himself. So we do want to be able to be faithful to the medium itself. In other words, we should develop some kind of artistic technique and hopefully have some artistic ability. It's just like with music, too. Not everybody can be a church musician. Everybody could and should sing the chants and the prayers during liturgy, during the worship services in church. But there are those who are called by God, given gifts, to develop their gifts so as to be able to lead the people in singing, you know, to lead the divine praises. Well, it's the same thing with artists. There are those who have the ability God gave it to them, and if they develop it, and especially they apply it to iconography, they will make very beautiful works of art, very beautiful icons that will, through the beauty of the technique and the prayer that goes into them, truly make God manifest his presence felt. So that's the one thing I would say. And you'll always hear this from a lot of people who talk about iconography. You will hear it from me because my background is in art. I understand what it means to be faithful to a medium. And as you learn the techniques of the medium, that you can convey things even better. You have more freedom to convey things as you respect the medium and learn the techniques of the medium. So that's the one thing I would say. Practice and learn art. Even get books on art, on drawing and painting. And just learn it as an art form first. 
Secondly, of course, it is a form of prayer. In a kind of an interesting way, Jesus, you are, of course, living in a cell, which is the same word used in monasticism. The thing that the monks live in is called a cell or monastic cell. And iconography was developed by those who were monastics, who lived in cells, who voluntarily, in a sense, chained themselves or imprisoned themselves spiritually to a life of austerity and asceticism and of developing beautiful things like church music and church art and translating and writing the scriptures and so on. So you have a chance, in a sense, to see your cell in a sense, a monastic cell. Whether you're married or not, you can still have the element of monasticism in your life, as every Christian ought to, and that's a very big point in Eastern Christian spirituality. Everybody is a monk, because a monk is someone who embraces radically their baptismal promise, and they live a life of dying to self and rising to Christ, rising to service and love of the other. That's monasticism, and every Christian, according to the Eastern Fathers, is a monk. So you can be a good monk in your cell, quote-unquote. Your cell now has a double meaning, and your chains have a double meaning as well. They now take on a spiritual meaning. So the second thing you do is, of course, adopt the right spiritual attitude towards it, which from your letter sounds like you are. This is a form of prayer. It has to be done prayerfully, and it has to follow, of course, certain prescriptions, as it were, because it is a form of prayer. Icons are like what we call theology in color. Just as we read the scripture, we read a book with it's made of pieces of paper with ink on them, and the ink is in the form of certain characters that make words to, you know, to reduce it down. Well, iconography happens to be on a board or canvas or a wall, and it uses a technique instead of words on a page, rather paint and line and color and gold leaf. So it's doing the same thing as a Bible is doing. It's communicating the scriptures. It's communicating the revelation. And so we have to approach it with that kind of attitude, prayerful and observing the kind of the, what I like to call the canons or the prescriptions of iconography, the particular style, the particular content, the particular colors, and so on. Now, another thing that Jesus asked me and I would recommend is to get good books. Most iconographers are self-taught. They are taught by other iconographers or on their own, especially if they have some artistic ability to start out with that makes it easier. But one of the books I'd recommend is called The Meaning of Icons by two authors, Uspensky and Losky. These are two last names, Uspensky and Losky. And I believe you can get this book through St. Vladimir Seminary Press. That's St. Vladimir Seminary Press. Again, the name of the book is The Meaning of Icons. It's kind of a classic, and I would highly recommend that one. There's a number of them out there, and another one I would recommend is called The Icon, Image of the Invisible, Elements of Theology, Aesthetics, and Technique, by an artist named Ehon Sandler. His name is spelled E-G-O-N. S-E-N-D-L-E-R. This is by Oakwood Publications. The Icon by Egon or Egon Sandler. I had the chance to see Egon Sandler's work in Rome. He actually decorated the walls of the refectory, you know, the cafeteria where the monks eat at the Rusicum, which is very traditional in Eastern churches and monasteries. The refectories they, they eat in are like works of art themselves. They almost look like chapels. They're usually painted floor to ceiling with icons, much like the church, because the gathering of meals is an extension of the liturgy. So it would stand to reason that the refectory would look a little bit like a church. Well, Ian Sendler's artwork, if you have a chance to go there, it's called the Rusicum. That's a Russian college in Rome. It's near Santa Maria Maggiore, next to the Oriental Institute. And in the refectory there, if you can be invited in for a peek, the monks might let you see the refectory there and see the paintings of Ihan Sendler. So I highly recommend those two books. There's other books as, as well, which I'll be uh, submitting to all of you in upcoming programs as well. But that's enough for today. Me Meaning of Icons and 
The Icon by Ehan Sendler. Two good books to learn, not only the theology of it, but also the technique of it, and the spirituality of it, and, and a good analysis of icons themselves, their composition, the why behind everything. Please stay with us here on Light of the East as we look more at how we can free ourselves from our chains and to see with the eyes of the icon. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you... You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Did you know that God constructed women's arms differently than men's? I am Father Thomas Loya with the Theology of the Body moment for the Tabor Life Institute. The axis of a woman's outstretched arms angles inward at the elbow, whereas in men the axis is straighter. This enables women to bring things to themselves easier than men. Everything about a woman's body, her mind, heart, and soul, is designed for connectedness and to bring the world close to her heart. The language of her body says that God is close, tender, and loving. But she also has what John Paul II called a genius. It is her gift of receptivity, stamped in the very design of her body. The Pope said that this makes woman the archetype of the human race because God designed the human race simply to receive his love. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya and Katie Gullis is joining us here. We're talking about how we can emancipate ourselves from our chains by seeing through the eyes of the icon and of also of the liturgical calendar, the feast days of the church. And we have a wonderful liberating icon and feast day coming up in the Byzantine calendar, which is February 2nd. It's called the Encounter of our Lord in the Temple with Simeon, or the Presentation of our Lord in the Temple with Simeon. Our Latin Rite brothers would call this feast the Purification. In other words, they see it as a Marian feast, a feast of the Mother of God. In the Eastern Church, we see it as a feast of Christ. Now, isn't that an interesting example of how the Church works and breathes with both lungs, east and west? Same event, it's from the Bible, 
from the Gospel of Luke, where the Virgin Mary brought Christ to the temple for her purification, because that was according to the law, and also to present the firstborn male, because the Bible said that the firstborn male who opens the womb is to be dedicated or consecrated to God. And isn't it interesting? Of course, Christ was the firstborn of the womb of the Virgin Mary, the only born, of course, while she remained a virgin before, during, and after. And of course, he gets consecrated to God the Father. Again, another example of his self-emptying, his humbling. And this actually concludes what started on Christmas. Yeah, this is actually the last, in a sense, the last observance of what we might call the entire Christmas theophany epiphany season, because once again, it's the same theme of a showing forth of God, of God humbling himself in the form of a human being and submitting to his own laws, which were designed for sinners, for people unclean and impure. They needed these laws. God didn't need these laws. He made the laws. And that's why in the liturgical services, we repeatedly exclaim that paradox that he who is the lawgiver now submits himself to the law. What an incredible self-emptying. And all this was to help liberate us from our chains, the chains of sin and our passions. But there was also somebody else who was liberated during this time, and that was an old man named Simeon who waited for a long time, a long time. He didn't want to die until he had seen the Messiah and actually held him in his hands. And after that, he said, Now you may dismiss your servant the Lord because my eyes have seen. These words compose an ancient chant that is sung at the Vesper service, the evening service in Byzantine Catholic churches. Now you may dismiss your servant of the Lord according to your word in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and so on. And this prayer, as I mentioned, is very ancient, sung in Byzantine, also Orthodox Eastern churches throughout the world every evening at the night prayer, the Vesper service, which ends and begins the next day in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. Now, this feast day has a very interesting history and context to it. Katie's going to read to us some of the biblical basis for this beautiful feast. The first scripture passage is from Leviticus chapter 12, and it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, when a woman has conceived and gives birth to a boy, she shall be unclean for seven days, with the same uncleanness as at her menstrual period. On the eighth day, the flesh of the boy's foreskin shall be circumcised, and then she shall spend thirty-three days more, and becoming purified of her blood. She shall not touch anything sacred, nor enter the sanctuary till the days of her purification are fulfilled. If she gives birth to a girl, for fourteen days shall she be as unclean as at her menstruation, after which she shall spend sixty days in becoming purified of her blood. When the days of her purification for a son or for a daughter are fulfilled, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the meeting tent a yearling lamb for a holocaust and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. The priest shall offer them up before the Lord to make atonement for her, and thus she will be clean again after her flow of blood. Such is the law for a woman who gives birth to a boy or to a girl child. If, however, she cannot afford a lamb, she may take two turtle doves or two pigeons the one for a holocaust and the other for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for her, and thus she will again be clean. The next passage is from Exodus chapter 13, and it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Consecrate to me every firstborn that opens the womb among the Israelites, both of man and beast, for it belongs to me. And the last passage is from Leviticus chapter 15. When a woman has her menstrual flow, She shall be in a state of impurity for seven days. 
Anyone who touches her shall be unclean until evening. Anything on which she lies or sits during her impurity shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed shall wash his garments, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches any article of furniture on which she was sitting shall wash his garments, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. But if she is on the bed or on the seat where he touches, he shall be unclean until evening. If a man dares to lie with her, he contracts her impurity and shall be unclean for seven days. Every bed on which he then lies also becomes unclean. Katie, when you as a woman hear this read, or as you'd read it just now, how does it strike you? Makes me feel kind of dirty. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does for, for many women, but I'm going to give a little bit of perspective on this. It sounds very negative, but actually we have to understand it in its context. Now, first of all, the Virgin Mary didn't need any of this, did she? Because she was pure. She was perfect. She was, and so obviously was Christ. She was God. Yet they both, the Holy Family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, submitted themselves willingly without complaint. You hear no complaints in the scripture about them having to comply with these laws, and yet they did it. So what is behind this idea of a woman being unclean after childbirth or after menstruation? In the time of the Jewish people, time of the Old Testament, as childbirth and menstruation does, there's a loss of blood. And they would think that for them, a loss of blood meant, in a sense, almost like a loss of life, almost as if you've touched death, because they believe that life was in the blood. Blood was very important to them. There was no forgiveness without the sacrifice, the shedding of blood. They would sprinkle blood over the altar of Holocaust. Moses was instructed to do that. Eventually, that blood, of course, would give rise to the blood of our Savior. And, of course, from that, the mystical blood and body of Christ that we have in the Eucharist, in the liturgy of the Mass. So blood was very significant, and if there was a loss of it, it was though it was a loss of life. But also, with something like childbirth, it was almost like a supernatural reality, something almost belonged to the next world, something as miraculous as childbirth. And with it, of course, involved some loss of blood. So the ancients believed that the ritual that was required of women in, the, in these cases was actually part of their re-entry into reality part of the re-entry of life back into their bodies. So it wasn't necessarily just a negative thing where they thought, oh, women are so dirty with this. The word unclean kind of throws us. But unclean actually meant, in the biblical sense, in the liturgical sense, a kind of a difference in status almost, from a very lofty, almost supernatural status where someone was brought to like a threshold, you know, where they lost, life came out of them in a sense. From that status to re-entering into the status of everyday life. And that had to be done through a ritual. And that's what they meant by being unclean. You had to go through this ritual, which you couldn't really do complete until 40 days after childbirth. So hopefully that may sound a little more positive to you or to any woman listening out there. But that is actually the, the biblical reason, the scriptural basis for this. It sounds a little strange to our ears today, but we always have to remember things were different then. We have to listen with the ears of the ancients of the, of the Bible. Well, there's so much more we could say about this marvelous feast as with all the feasts of the church, but we're going to switch a little bit here just for a moment. As you know, we also update you on news events relative to the Eastern churches, and we've been following this event, the events in the Middle East, where there's been the persecution of Christians, and recently the Pope came out very admirably and called the Egyptian government to protect Christians, and there was a negative response by the government and also by a Muslim leader. The response to the criticism by one of the Pope's spokesmen, Father Lombardi. Pope Benedict XVI's position is very clear and always has been, a radical condemnation of violence, closeness to the community, 
that has been so horribly stricken and concern for the religious freedom of Christian minorities. As he said in his Peace Day message, the Pope's concern for the religious freedom of Christians has always been within the context of his concern for religious freedom of all people, not only Christians. Time and again, the Pope has condemned violence against all people, not only that which is perpetrated against Christians. We recall his recent disclosure to the new ambassador to the Holy See from Iraq, in which the Holy Father spoke of the innocent victims of violence, both Muslim and Christian. Right now we see the commitment of all those responsible for the safety of peoples and the fight against terrorism. We also need all those from all faiths, from every persuasion who work for peace, to commit themselves to opposing a foul plan that evidently aims to divide, to arouse tension, hatred, and conflict. Pope's invitation to Assisi for this upcoming October demonstrates his desire to repeat the message that no war may be waged in God's name, but only peace. And let us all pray that all people in the Middle East, especially Christians, will be liberated from the chains of persecution, war, suffering, and hate. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya, here with Katie Goulas on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610. Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. CRI, Catholic Radio International.com.